kings, the Lord of lords, to be our shepherd. We thank you so much, Lord, that we can know you and have a relationship with you, Jesus. We thank you that there is absolutely no one like you. First of all, you're all we have, which is good because you're all we need. And also, you are all we want. And to the extent that that is not true, we ask that you would make that true in our hearts, Lord. Help us now as we hear your word. Help our hearts to want to praise you, want to worship you, and to grow in that today. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Luke and worship team, for leading us in worship through song this morning. I was just thinking this last week, when, whenever I get sick and uh, I'm getting over being sick, I just always think, man, how awesome is heaven going to be not ever having to be sick ever again? And then it just starts, I roll through all of the things that I long for about heaven. I can't wait to surf without having to be afraid of getting eaten by a shark, because that is a very real fear. Uh, priorities, yes. I uh, can't wait to see family members that I've never met, but that love Jesus, that helped develop a, a stream for my family line that loves Jesus. Can't wait to meet writers of the scriptures. That is going to be so amazing to not only study at their feet and be able to understand exactly what the text says, but also to be able to hear their, their affections for Christ, their personality come out in what they're saying, and, and to hear them as eyewitness testimonies describe the details of the narratives that they wrote. There are so many things that I cannot wait to see in heaven, to do in heaven. But I think probably in the top three things that I can't wait for is to sing. We just sang a song. Maybe it's new for many of you. Jesus, there's no one like you. We believe that. We know that to be true here. But one day when we're in heaven... We will sing that song with a different understanding of the glory of Christ. We sing, you're all that we have, you're all that we need, and you're all that we want. And just like Luke said, just as he prayed, Jesus is all that we want. We know that intellectually, but in this life, we struggle with sin, we struggle with temptation, we struggle with other desires, other wants. But in heaven, we'll sing that song with a heart that says you are all I want. And I finally get to have all of you. I, I cannot wait to sing. The, the really amazing reality is God has given us songs in the scriptures that we will be singing on that day that can inform our present singing this day. If you have your copy of God's word, and I trust that you do, take it out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we are going to hear the songs of heaven. We're going to sing with these saints, with these angels, with these uh, four living creatures. We are going to hear their songs, and we're going to let their songs inform our singing. It's one of the reasons why uh, we did what we did with this service, where we sang a couple songs in the front end, and then we're going to let the songs of heaven inform our singing 
at the end of our service. And we're going to sing a lot of songs to just let our praise resound, informed by Scripture and compelled by Scripture. Revelation 19 follows 17 and 18, obviously, where we saw Babylon being destroyed. And we heard a command in chapter 18, verse 20, rejoice over her. That was a command, rejoice over Babylon's destruction. And chapter 19 is all of heaven's obedience to that command, rejoicing in everything that God has done, in judging evil and in bringing about righteousness. So let's read it together. We'll study verses 1 through 6 this morning. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Father, we are astounded yet again at the privilege of gathering to listen to your word being read. We think about October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther um, effectually began the Protestant Reformation. We think of one of the realities that he was fighting for, that the Bible be read by the common people in the common tongue. And he fought for public readings of scripture, and we were able to do that this day as we do every Lord's Day. And God, we also have the, the privilege of being able to gather and to hear your word preached. Something that our, our brother Martin Luther would have loved to see, that he fought for. And God, we have the privilege of being able to hear your voice go forth and resound in this place. Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, that you would cause us to tremble as we stare at these songs, as we hear their content, and as we hear uh, the character of those who are singing, what they are highlighting of our great and awesome God. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would compel us to love you more with greater affections, with a, a deeper love for Christ, and Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, I pray that you would be pleased to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you, we have no hope of getting anything out of this passage that we're supposed to get. So we come dependent before you, relying on you, and expecting great things, not because of our ability or because of our goodness, but because of Christ alone. We pray it in his name. Amen. 
Revelation chapter 19, there is a fourfold hallelujah. There are four songs that are sung in Revelation 19, and they give us four specific motivations for eternal praise. That's what we're going to look at this morning, four specific motivations for eternal praise. It begins in verse 1, after these things. So after seeing the destruction of Babylon, after knowing that evil will not last forever, it's now time for the loudness and enthusiastic rejoicing to replace the silence of ruined Babylon. The end of the harlot's reign marks the beginning of the bride's enjoyment. The fourfold hallelujahs are a response to that command in chapter 18, verse 20, to rejoice. And the songs of 19, verses 1 through 5, look backwards to the judgment of Babylon. And the song of 19, verses 6 through 8, look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that Lord willing we'll be looking at together next week. But I want to stare at these four hallelujahs. I want to stare at these four songs and let these four songs inform our understanding of why we should be praising our great and awesome God. Song number one, found in verses one through two, gives us the motivation to worship God, number one, because of his righteous judgments. Worship God because of his righteous judgments. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice, a loud voice. I, I love those two Greek words put together, voice is phoneo, or phone, where we get phone from, and loud is megas. So this is literally in the Greek, a megaphone. This is a megaphone blaring in heaven over the character and the judgments of our God. It's a great multitude in heaven. It could be saints. It could be the great multitude that we saw in chapter 7. It could be a great multitude of angels. We don't know. It's not specified for us. But we do know what they're saying. They are saying hallelujah, hallelujah. That's a transliterated word. Transliterated means it's left in its original language and we just sound it out phonetically. So hallelujah, you know a Hebrew word. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. Hallel is praise. Yah is Yahweh, the Lord. And then the little you there is the second person plural command. It's an imperative. So you, all of you, praise Yahweh. That's what hallelujah is. It's a command to praise Yahweh. It's very interesting. The word hallelujah only occurs four times in the New Testament, and they're all right here. It occurs 24 times in the Psalms, and the very first time that it occurs in the Psalms, when you see praise the Lord in the Psalms, you see it in Psalm 104, verse 35. Psalm 104, verse 35 is the very first time that you see the construction, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, hallelujah. And listen to Psalm 104, verse 35, because you will hear inside of this psalm praising God for righteous judgments. Typically, when we think of praise the Lord, we're thinking of praise God for his creation, praise God for his love, praise God for his kindness and his mercy. But here, the very first time that we see praise Yahweh, a command, hallelujah, it reads, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Let sinners be consumed and the wicked be no more, praise the Lord. So the very first mention of hallelujah and almost the very last mention of hallelujah in the Bible are bookended by praising God for his righteous judgments. And this song celebrates specifically his salvation, his glory, his power, and his judgments that are true and righteous. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation, that's deliverance. 
God by nature is a creator. We have fallen. We have gone astray from our creator. And he wants to deliver us, to save us, to bring us to himself. That is by nature who he is. And he is the one who is doing the saving. So that's why there is a praise on the lips of all of these people. That's why I would say it's probably the multitude that we saw in Revelation 7. That's the, the saints that are praising God for delivering them, not only from uh, out of the tribulation and from the destruction of what was going on in that d despicable time of wickedness and evil reigning, but also to praise God for the deliverance from sin, from death, from punishment, from judgment, and from hell itself. Salvation. We praise God. It's very interesting. In the New Testament, you'll find salvation used in the past tense, present tense, and future tense. You'll see it. Past tense, salvation has been given to us. Present tense, we are being saved currently. And future tense, we will be saved in the future. God's the one who does all of the saving in every single totality of what salvation means. Secondly, we're praising God for glory. Salvation and glory. Glory is God's holiness on display. I think the best place that you can go to to get a definition of what glory is is Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah sees the Lord. He's on his throne. The train of his robe is filling the temple with glory, and the whole earth is filled, and it's trembling. And Isaiah says, as he's seen every angel crying out, holy, 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 Isaiah writes down that they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You would expect if they're all consumed about God's holiness that they would say, holy, 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 the earth is filled with his holiness. But you can't see his holiness. His character of holiness can only be seen through his glory. So glory is God's holiness on display. Glory is God's holiness going public. And so we see that God is a holy God in his judgments, that he is right in his judgments. He's morally right in his judgments. We see the glory of God in creation. We see the glory of God in his kindness. We see the glory of God most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this group praises God for salvation, praises God for glory, praises God for power, power of the execution of his judgments. God has powerfully rendered judgment. No one has power like God. God has power. God is power. He creates the universe with his power to display his glory in order to bring us into a place of salvation. A threefold response to who God is. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In the original, it literally says the salvation, the glory, and the power. So the de definite articles attached to each one of those words. That means all of the salvation. No one else can do the saving. All of the glory. No one else is glorious like he is. All of the power. No one else has power like him. He is all of these things. He is the ultimate expression of all of these things. R.C. Sproul says it this way. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I can't exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God doesn't need me in order to, for him to be him. I do need God in order for me to be me. We are dependent. We are fragile. And this is how we differ from God. I wonder if you recognize that God alone has all of the salvation, all of the power, and all of the glory. There are things in life that remind us of this. That salvation doesn't belong to me. Power doesn't belong to me. Glory doesn't belong to me. I think one of the realities that just, it's been staring us in the face as a church personally, but just 
in, as, a, as the world in this season of COVID is our own mortality. Reminds us that we can't save ourselves. Try as long as you want, and you might just add a few years to your life. But you can't save yourself. You have no power to be able to keep yourself living. In fact, just a little virus can infect your body and, and take life from you. I was thinking this last week just about how short life is and how fast we're forgotten. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? I don't. I know the name of my great-grandmother, and that's it. Do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Do you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? Just a few generations removed from where we are now, we have forgotten people that should be the closest to us in our family tree, but they're gone and forgotten. I think death hangs over us as a reminder that there's only one person in the entire world who owns all of the power, all of the salvation, and all of the glory. It knocks out all of those uh, sturdy foundations that we think that we've built under us of, of health and uh, of uh, maybe prosperity around us, that we think we have control and we'll be okay. It's very interesting. I think David was hit by this reality at the end of his life. There's two passages, uh, the last psalm that he wrote and the last song that he wrote before he died. So there's a specific psalm in 2 Samuel 22 that's his last psalm, and then there's a specific uh, praise that he gave. It's technically not a psalm uh, because of the way that he describes it, but it's his last words before he dies in 2 Samuel. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 29. I want to read these to you, and I want you to listen to the words of David as he is on his deathbed, as it were, preparing to meet his creator, the one who has salvation, glory, and power. 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. He is my deliverer. He is my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. At the end of his life, he's just saying, God, you're the one who does the saving. It's not me. You're the one who has the power. It's not me. You're the one who has the glory. It's not me. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. This is David's prayer right before he dies. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. God, you and you alone are victorious. You alone are glorious. You alone have salvation. That's why these saints praise God. They're in heaven. They're realizing God alone has all of these attributes. Secondly, in verse 2, they also praise him in this first song because his judgments are true and righteous. His judgments are true and righteous. In my translation of the Bible, it has that in all capital letters, which means if you see a New Testament passage that has all capital letters, a sentence or a phrase in all capital letters, that means that it is a quotation from an Old Testament passage. And you know exactly where this is quoted from. This is Psalm 19, verse 9. God's judgments are true and righteous. Literally, Psalm 19, verse 9 reads that. God's judgments. That means God is a judge. God is 
a, a judge, and the Bible is a compiling of all of his divine verdicts, and those divine verdicts are right. They're true. They're true verdicts. They're right verdicts. God sees everything accurately. He sees everything correctly. He's a judge, but he's a good judge. He's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. That's why Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says that everyone's going to be found to be a liar, and God's going to be found to be true. So he has brought judgment. And he's judged the great harlot Babylon because she was corrupting the earth with her immorality. If you are a circler in your Bible, I would circle that word was. She was corrupting, but she's corrupting no more. She has no more influence to corrupt anyone anymore. And that's actually going to lead to the second song of praise because evil is being vanquished in such a way where Babylon does not have any more power, no more sway. And says at the end of verse 2 that God has avenged the blood of his bondservants, literally the word slaves. He's avenged the blood of his slaves on her. This is another direct quotation from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with God's people, because he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will atone for his land and his people. He will avenge. The only other time that that word avenged is used in the book of Revelation is with the martyrs crying out in chapter 6, when will you avenge our blood? Remember, they prayed, God stored up their prayers, and then he poured them out in that bowl onto the earth to judge the earth. God has vindicated their blood. Remember, we talked last week that this is not a hypothetical situation for our brother John. He lost his own brother to martyrdom in 44 AD under Agrippa I, had his head cut off. All of the apostles died as martyrs. You could say that John didn't because John died a natural death, but he died a natural death being exiled on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. Probably would have lived longer if he hadn't have died on this uh, accursed rock. So they all died for the, the gospel. Paul was killed. And even to this day, Thousands and thousands of our brothers and sisters are being killed. And the question is, will God judge? Will God stop? Will God put an end to all of this? And the answer is yes. Even though Romans 8 says that we are being put to death all day long, we're like sheep uh, led to the slaughter, God says, I'm going to step in and stop that. No more. And so he does. And that's why the church triumphant sings these praises. They're praising God because he will repay those who sought to destroy him and his people. Praise God for his righteous judgments. Number two, second song, found in verse three. Praise God because rebellion has ended. Number one, praise God because of his righteous judgments. Praise God, number two, because the rebellion of Babylon has ended. His righteous judgments have brought an end to Babylon. Verse 2 extols the fact of Babylon's judgment. Verse 3 extols the finality of it. Verse 3, and the second time they said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Rises up forever and ever. This is another direct quotation from the Old Testament. This is Isaiah 34, verses 8 
through 10, rising up forever and ever, never to end. Hell will be as long as heaven is. The scriptures always tie the two destinies together. Heaven will be forever. Hell will be forever. And so there is here a looking forward to the future that Babylon is destroyed in time and space at the end of this seven-year period of time, but the wickedness that Babylon produced will always be destroyed forever in hell, forever being judged. Now, we've looked at this briefly on a number of occasions as we've studied the book of Revelation of heavenly praise being used to, to praise God for judgment. Sometimes we scratch our heads about that. And we've answered it a number of different ways, looking at the holiness of God, looking at the, the beauty of God finally judging evil and wickedness, the cry, how long, O Lord? But I think that there's two reasons here. In verse 3, just two more reasons to add to why it is right to be praising God for him bringing eternal judgment and punishment. One reason to praise God for eternal judgment is because he's going to confine sin, evil, wickedness, and wrongdoing in a place forever that will never allow that evil to come out ever again. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. He says hell was created for the devil and his angels. You think all the way back in eternity past when God creates the world. God makes the world. God has angels around him. Satan decides to rebel against God. And God says, well, you can't stay in heaven. You can't abide here and dwell here in heaven. And I don't want you all to abide and dwell on earth. So where are we going to put you? You've rebelled against me. You are now sinful creatures. Where are we going to put you? And he creates hell as a place, as a holding tank for evil, for the devil and for his angels. Currently, they are able to, as Peter tells us, roam around like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour. They have sway. They tempt. But one day, they will all be put, devils, demons, evil angels, all be put into hell, which will be thrown into the lake of fire. And they will never, ever come out again. God will do the same thing with sinners, with those who are unrighteous, with those who have not repented and turned to trust in Christ for salvation. God will do that with sin, with evil. He will put it into a holding tank, and no one will ever be able to get out of it. So we should praise the Lord that hell is forever, because that means the paradise that we will enjoy in heaven will be forever without any possibility of sin ever getting to us. Secondly, I'm asked this question a lot, and the honest answer is, I don't know. People ask, how am I going to feel in heaven when I don't see my loved ones there? How am I going to feel in heaven? If I'm there and my loved ones aren't there, then I know where they are. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure that there's sorrow, but at the same time, the Bible says that there's no sorrow in heaven, no weeping. At the same time, God wipes away the tears that are in our eyes, so there's a, an ability at least to be able to cry in his presence. I don't know the answer, but I know verse 3 tells me that there is a way in which we will be able to understand God's holiness and understand his justice where we will be able to say, God, be praised. I don't know how that works. 
but I know that it works. God be praised. We will be able to praise him because the judgment of God's enemies reveals God's glory in ways that nothing else does. And so we will praise him. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, never again to exist in tempting others or in trying to corrupt the earth. She's gone. A third song. So we have praising God for his righteous judgments. We have praising God for rebellion being ended. A third song. We praise God, and it is the motivation is the reverberation of praise itself. The reverberation of praise itself. This is song number three. And this is found in verse 4. And it's the shortest of all of these songs. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Just a two-word song. Amen, hallelujah. Again, this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. It is true. And praise the Lord. So there are so many things that can be said about just this simple two-word song. Number one, in all of these songs, we've seen quotations of Scripture. We've seen the Old Testament being quoted. So I think principle number one about our praise is if you want to be able to praise God rightly, you must know God's word correctly. If you want to be able to praise God rightly, you must know God's word correctly. We talk a lot about how our praise must be informed by God's word. We don't want empty-headed emotionalism. We don't want just an anti-intellectual emotional experience. We want empty, we want a full head of love, of knowledge, and of passion for the Lord. At the same time, we don't want empty-hearted intellectualism. We don't want to just look at what God's word says, not be affected by it, and have zero passion whatsoever. And when we sing, we want both together. We want intellectualism and emotionalism put together. And I think that these songs are clearly identifying, if, you're, if you want to praise God correctly, you need to know his word. Secondly, another principle that we see just from these two words is that as one person praises God, Others are encouraged to do the same. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, with all teaching, uh, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to God in your hearts. As you praise, you encourage other people to praise. As you shout before the Lord that God is worthy, that he's all that we need, you encourage other people to praise as well. Let's quote Martin Luther since it is the anniversary of the Reformation. He said this, music is to be praised as second only to the word of God, because by her all the emotions are swayed. That is why there are so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been bestowed on men alone to remind them they are created to praise and to magnify the Lord. We see it in the Old Testament, and we see it here at the very end of time in the New Testament, that we're singing and praising the Lord. Jonathan Edwards says the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Why don't we just speak the songs that we sing? Why don't we just show up 
put the words up on the screen and just speak the songs. Because these things, as Jonathan Edwards says, have a tendency to move our affections, to grow our love for Christ. John Piper said that, says it this way. The reason that we sing is because there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotions that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic forms or even poetic readings. There are realities that demand to break out of prose and into poetry, and some demand that poetry be stretched into song. Gospel-centered, theologically informed poetry that's being stretched into song. That's why I love singing. We see a two-word song, and it just has to be one of the most passionate, emotional songs. Amen. Hallelujah. This verse, verse 4, also teaches us and informs our understanding of what worship should be here. Worship through song should be here by showing us the way in which they worship and what they worship. Look at the way in which they worship. Verse 4 the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down. There's a physical expression to the way that they worship. It's passionate. It's expressive. The mind, the emotions, the body is all engaged. It's loud. People are falling down. You might say, oh, well, that's not very orderly, is it? They don't really care about that. They cannot believe that they're in the presence of God in his glory. And they cry out, hallelujah. We tell our kids that they should use their inside voices at home. But man, at church, they should use their outside voice as loud as they can. And we should be the front runners for them. They should see us. They should see us be more excited about God than we are about anything throughout the rest of the week. Jim Boyce says it this way, the people of God are to praise God loudly because they are happy in him. Are you happy in God? Volume alone isn't sufficient. You must be distinctively joyful and glad in God as you sing. In the midst of all of your noise, joy must be discernible. Charles Spurgeon says, our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. We should be the, happy, the happiest people in the world. God's wrath has been consumed by Christ and so we are free. We are adopted sons and daughters. We have no fear of future wrath. So how's our worship? Do we look like this when we worship? Do we sound like this when we worship? The worship of heaven, we've seen it throughout the book of Revelation. People casting down their crowns before the throne, singing for God's creating work, the work of him as creator. We've seen... Uh, all of heaven rejoicing, saying, you are worthy to take and open the scroll because you have been slain. We've seen praise for God's saving work. We've also seen praise for God's wrath that is to come, a work of judgment. And all of this is reminding us that worship before the Lord isn't about our preference or about what we desire. It's about what brings God glory, about his pleasure. And so a short, simple Two-word song informs our understanding of how we should worship as well. So we praise the Lord, number one, for his righteous judgments. We praise the Lord, number two, because rebellion has ended. We praise the Lord, number three, because reverberation of praise encourages more praise. 
Finally, number four, we praise the Lord because his present reign, we praise him for his present reign and his coming kingdom. We praise God, fourth song here in verses five through six, for his present reign and his coming kingdom. Verse five, a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God. Literally in the Greek there, it's keep on praising God. Don't let it stop. Don't ever let it end. Who's to praise him? All you his slaves, all you who fear him, the small and the great. I love that, small and great. There's no socioeconomic divisions in heaven. All the small, all of the great, they're all represented there. There will be great people in heaven, poor people, humble people, uh, rich people. They're all going to be in heaven. But notice it's the slaves of God who praise him. And notice it's those who fear him. Those who fear him. We fear the Lord because of his judgments. We fear the Lord because of his wrath against sin. And fear is necessary for salvation. We've said it over and over again in the book of Revelation, but it's not sufficient for salvation. It moves you to Christ. But once you get saved, are we supposed to be afraid? We don't have to fear future wrath ever again. 1 John, perfect love casts out all fear. Should we be afraid? Well, I think this verse says yes. You also know Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're saved, but you're to work out that salvation with fear. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Yes, fear is going to be different. Yes. It's a different kind of fear now that you are saved. But there is still fear, and I think that we can tend to struggle knowing the gospel, uh, just saying, I don't need to fear at all. There's still going to be fear in heaven, because you are surrounded by the holiness and the greatness of God. It's a different kind of fear, yes, but it is still a holy awe, and that holy awe produces sanctification. So, are you struggling to fight sin? If you are, then you're struggling to fear God. You're struggling to fear God because the fear of the Lord in your life as a believer will help you to perfect your own struggles with sin, your own righteous living. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, with fear and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Why did Adam and Eve fall? Why did they sin? There's so many reasons why they sinned. One of them is they didn't fear God. What about you? Do you fear God? The amount of our fear in holy awe and reverence towards who God is will be directly proportional to how we will then praise him for welcoming us into his family. Verse 5, praise him, keep on praising him, all you who fear him. Verse 6, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. We've seen all these descriptions before, but now they're all used to speak of this uh, incredibly awesome sound in heaven, just shaking all of heaven. Everyone together with one voice saying, hallelujah, because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
rains. Literally, in the Greek, it's already began the rain, and now we're seeing it in its fulfillment. And it's about to break in. We're going to see it in the second coming, which is happening in chapter 19. But in order for Jesus to bring about the reign of righteousness in the earth, he first has to depose the reign of evil. He has to get rid of Babylon. So him jumping in and destroying the harlot is the beginning of this reign. That's why I say we're praising God for his present reign and his coming kingdom. It's breaking in right now. And at a future time, it will finally find its culmination and consummation in the millennial kingdom and beyond. Praise the Lord. Why do we praise God? Because of his righteous judgments. Because the rebellion on earth has ended. At this point, Babylon has been destroyed. There's going to be a future rebellion at the end. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 20. But Jesus is coming back to throw the Antichrist into the lake of fire, to throw the false prophet into the lake of fire, and to bind Satan for a thousand years. We praise the Lord because that rebellion of Babylon has finally been destroyed, and that's a reminder of the future rebellion that we will finally enjoy sin being destroyed forever. We praise God because the reverberation of our praise encourages more praise. And we praise God because the present reign of his kingdom is breaking in and finally there will be a consummation of that kingdom as he comes a second time to rule and to reign in righteousness. What are you looking forward to most about heaven? I'm looking forward to a lot. But I'm really looking forward to singing. And every chance we have to gather together as God's people is a preview. It's a small taste we're not shaking the walls of the library here, but it's a small taste of what is yet to come. So may we let heaven's praises then inform our praises now as we sing in response to all that God is, to all that he's done, and to all that he promises to do for those that he loves. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so clear. It is so encouraging. It is challenging. It is convicting. Even here this morning, four songs that could easily just be an encouragement to our soul, they find conviction in places where we struggle. They find conviction in our hearts in places where we struggle to worship you the way that these believers and saints and, and angels and angelic beings are worshiping you. And Father, now as we enjoy an extended time of responding with our own fourfold hallelujah, as it were, may we respond to your righteous judgments that ultimately are poured out on Christ so that we can go free, forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, and justified. God, may we praise you because the rebellion of sin, even in our own hearts, will ultimately one day be destroyed. We will be saved from the presence of sin, just as we've been saved from its power and its penalty. And God, we want our praises to reverberate in this room, in this space, as a foretaste of heaven and encourage one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and teaching each other and let it reverberate here. And we want to praise you that even when it doesn't really look like good is winning or you're even in control, we know that your kingdom is breaking in. You are, 
are working to reign, and that reign is already breaking in in small ways in our hearts, in the world, through the gospel, and through the church. And one day you will come back to reign and to rule in righteousness in your second coming. So, Father, may the praises of heaven in Revelation 19 then in the future inform our praises right now in the present. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 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 Please stand with us as we.